Hi, I'm Mike from the Genuine Chit Chat Podcast, where we have honest conversations with interesting people. I speak to a wide variety of guests, including CEOs of businesses, psychologists, authors, musicians, travellers, people suffering with physical and mental illnesses, and everyone in between. Where we speak about a large variety of topics, including music and movies and pop culture, but also some more controversial topics, including drug reform, political correctness, and many more. No subject is off limits. You can find us in all the usual podcast places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, as well as on YouTube. And you can follow us in all the usual social media places. And to be clear, I don't expect everyone listening to enjoy every episode of my show. What I do think is that due to the wide variety of guests and topics, that there'll be at least one episode that each person listening will enjoy. So if you still appreciate the art of conversation and want to hear honest conversations with interesting people, then be sure to check out Genuine Chit Chat in all the usual places. Indie Comics Spotlight, the show where we spend time looking at an ongoing series or graphic novel from a company other than the big two. The hope here is that we can do a deep dive on an indie comic you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterwards. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. I hope that you enjoyed the show. Well, my guest today is um, a voice hopefully you've heard on the um, Stories Out of Time and Space pod with uh, our good friend Scott Weatherly, who was on this very show early on um, to talk Judge Dredd, which backed me into a deal. So this is Julian doesn't know this, or maybe you do know this, but I'm actually writing an essay for the, I wrote an essay for the upcoming Sequart book on Dread, and the title Judging Dread was, was I'm the one who, who pitched that. So it's all coming full circle. So I'm finally getting to meet you. Dr. Darius, welcome to Indie Comic Spotlight. Hello. I'm honored to be here. This is uh, incredibly exciting for me. And uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you in the book. And, and this is a great honor to be able to be on your podcast. I'm so excited, yeah, because because having Scott on when we talked Dread, I was kind of a Dread. You know, I'm one of those people who knew enough, who'd read a few. So Scott and I sat down and I read the first 80 programs. Like that's what mm-hmm. we did all the way through the Savage Land, uh, the Wasteland saga and the Fast Food Wars. And we just had such a good time. And then I couldn't stop reading, you know, the other stuff that I'd missed because I'd never gone to the back to the beginning. So that was such a treat. And um, so I'm excited about the book that comes out. And uh, Sam Lofty is going to do that. Lofty is going to do the cover. And he's, an, he's a great guy. He's been on the show. So look at it. It all comes together. This is all just one big promo for the Dread book. <laughs> well, Scott's awesome to talk to about Dread because, you know, I, as an American, you know, uh, I, you know, had to like get all the, you know, random volumes in, you know, different comic stores when I travel across the country. I Every town I was in, I'd go there and I'd be like, oh, there's another 2018 volume. Yeah. Who is you know, Devlin Wow? I have yeah, no idea, right. no but idea. I own all of the trades. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Scott actually got it. Yeah, yeah, he does. He's, he's such a great guy. And so because of him, here we are. So I'm thrilled. So welcome aboard. You're wearing a, I'm wearing a Batman shirt. You're wearing a Transformer shirt. So this is, even though this is, a, it, nobody can see us. We are, we've, we have come correct as people say. So let's hear your comic book origin story. You are, unfortunately, your doctorate is not in comic book awesomeness, but it should be. Do you have an honorary doctorate in that, I'm assuming, and oh, well. in comic book awesomeness because of the work you do with Marshall <laughs> and Seacourt, obviously. 
Um, if only that, doctorate titles ended in awesomeness. Awesomeness, <laughs> doctorate of awesomeness. Literature yeah. awesomeness. Would that be great? But yeah, so let's hear about not just, you know, your own educational journey, but like, I'm because based on what I know of you and the books of yours I've read and the stuff, you know, just listening to you talk, it obviously seems like culture and your, your work as an academic have married themselves together and are, are inextricably linked. So let's hear about that. Like, how did you, what was your comic book origin story? And then how did you, how did your love of that turn into the work that you do? Well, I feel like an outsider in every group. Okay. I mean, I feel okay. like a fake my entire life, right? Like right. Uh, I can socialize with lots of different people, but I always feel like I'm a little bit of an outsider in every group. So I grew up in an academic family. My father was a professor um, and uh, I grew up with, you know, film history and music history and all this kind of stuff. And I would just go to the university for like summer camp and stuff like that. That's awesome. So very kind of academic background, uh, you know, very liberal, very tolerant. Um, however, like, you know, I inherited my father's depression. And my father, when he was a kid growing up in rural Wisconsin, you know, uh, was sort of neglected by his family and he would go to the movies. And back then you could just sit and watch the movie. And when it ended, you could just stay and watch it again. So yeah. he would watch the same movie like all day, you know. And my version of that was I was a, you know, lonely, messed up, uh, depressed kid. I had that academic background, but I felt incredibly alone, incredibly alienated um, and terrible depression. So I got into comics and comics were my medium choice. They were the thing where I could sit there and uh, I read a lot of novels. I read a lot of nonfiction. I look back and I'm amazed, like, where did I find the time for all this? Right. But, you know, now, but I just fell in love with comics. And the, what you could do with comics with a mixture of, of visuals and words on, uh, coming from that literary academic background, I loved the literature of it. I love the storytelling. I, I knew that comics could, even at like 10, I knew that comics could do everything that a novel could do, everything that a great epic could do. And, and I loved the art. I loved the ability to combine these things in a way that still had that slowness of the page that you have with literature that you don't have with movies. And I love movies. I talk about movies, you know, on yeah, stories. On the show. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But but, you know, there's something about just sitting there with a book, uh, whether it's on your computer or, or physically and, and being able to take your time and, and think about what those words mean and kind of get lost in the implications in a way that unless you pause that movie, <laughs> you, you can't really do. Yeah. Um, so basically from there, I, I you know, um, graduated high school. I went to college. I went to a few different colleges. I was a disaffected kid who, you know, didn't know if I wanted to go to college, um, super liberal, uh, super alienated from the culture. And in college, I basically found all my professors who I loved were, you know, I gravitated to, you know, kind of old school profs who were like, you know, look, if you have not had the entire history of Western civilization and upper level courses, you're just not educated, man. You know, that kind of yeah, like old, school old school liberal arts. Yeah. Yeah. My, yeah. I remember my, uh, when I was the school that I ended up going to Albion college in Albion, Michigan, uh, the head of the, the 
English department, Dr. Krupe, he's like this old hunched old, like, you know, like he had corduroy pants and like a blue, like he was just this mismatch, like somebody dragged him out of a dryer to come meet the students. And my dad, <laughs> who didn't get me as like a book nerd describing what you are, because he was not a book nerd at all. He's like, oh my God, that's you. I'm like, I hope so. <laughs> like, yes, if I can one day be that guy, he's like, I get it now. I get what you're, I get how that's your idol. Like that he's, Dr. Krupe was like my Bob Dylan, you know, it's like, so you get that. Like you get those people who, who just, you're like, oh, can I just hang out and be in your space? <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. Well, what you're talking about is like finding a place, right? Yeah. You know, we all want to find a place with people who we're simpatico with, who, you know, and, and your dad was like, wait a minute, my yeah. weird son, there's an avenue <laughs> there's for success for that. That's, that's right. respectable. Yeah. 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 But yeah, that's totally true. And so just as you're describing that, I was just like, oh man, I, I get that. And I think, <laughs> I think there is a place, you know, I teach at a liberal arts university. So do you, right? So, so you get it. Like we, we've stayed in this world. And so it is good to know, you know, it's just always nice to talk to other people who are like, no, no, liberal arts, there's a place for that. It's not for everybody. Nobody would ever say it's for everybody, but they're, they're, it's a place I, for a lot of people. I love it. And, and college really saved my life. You know, I mean, yeah. I mentioned I was nice. a depressed kid and, you know, I mean, high school was like, I think I did two hours of homework in four years of high school. I mean, I would just come in and uh, I mean, I, so, you know, I mean, I would test in the 99th percentile and every test I wouldn't study. I would come into school and like come in late to history class and, and the teacher would be like, so what, what happened here? And as I'm going to my desk, I would answer the question that people can't answer. And they're like, I wish more people were like Julian, just not as lazy. You know? like, and so, you know, I mean, I, I would turn in worksheets to my teachers and just say, I'm not a guy who does dittos. Thank you. Please recycle these. Uh, so obviously I was not the best student. I was, you know, arrogant and a prick. And I look back and I was an idiot, but, um, but high school was like, you know, and I'm around just jerks. It's all social hell. You know, I understand, you know, why people are so alienated and it's worse today. Oh, it's um, way worse today. Sure. Oh yeah. It's so, it's even more bureaucratic and, you know, um, so, you know, to me, it was like, I don't know if I want to continue this educational thing, and I don't know where my place is. And for me, college was, you know, and I'm sure you probably sympathize with this, college is like the closest thing to a utopia we have on this planet, man. Like, I, so. I, I can sit there, I can study under, like, brilliant people who have studied this and know more about this, and, and they're giving of their time. And plus, it's like a little socialist commune, like, I can go to the gym, I can go get my, my, uh, medicine um i can you know do yeah, the all campus this, doctor is included in your tuition right yeah exactly yeah. there's like a, a gym with great amenities like it's a combination of like you know a, a gym membership and you know and there's concerts and like guest speakers every week so many movies i discovered through just groups that played movies you know yeah. um you want to study the, library, foreign language? the greatest academic libraries and you know like academic yeah. libraries are the greatest places in the world yeah yeah, I mean, I used to just, you know, I'd call up my friends and I'd just say in college, like, hey, you know, I've never read Dante. You want to just go read Dante? And we just go to the library and spend all weekend just reading and comparing translations of Dante for the hell of it. Yeah, <laughs> like, that's, that's so awesome. <laughs> what a life, man. Yeah, yeah. It's but the downside, the downside of college was that with all those kind of like old school profs, all of them were just like, yeah, comics is not art, okay? Mm. Like, you mean that stuff with, like, uh, you know, Mickey Mouse? Uh, you know, they're just like, yeah, you know, that is for kids. And, you know, I had one person say, like, if, if you want anyone to take this seriously, you've got to call it something other than comics. Um, 
you know, just very, this was not a legitimate art form. And so I, that was when I started writing about comics and I started just basically writing papers for college, not for a class and putting them on line and line. And this was the early days of the internet and the mid nineties. And, you know, I learned HTML and just started, you know, making a website. And, and then people were like, Hey, this is really cool. Let's uh, let, I want to write for you. And that turned into uh, what ultimately turned into Sequart. And the point of Sequart was to take comics seriously and present it as a legitimate form of art that could stand up to, you know, the great novels, opera, uh, great cinema, everything else. So that was really my start in comics. Um, and all along, I always wrote comics. I mean, I w- was always a writer um, and I read every comic book script I could get a hold on. You know, I would, um, I probably wrote 10,000 pages of comic scripts before wow. I ever published a single issue, <laughs> which amazing. is dumb. <laughs> well, but it was, it was practice, right? You makes it a little easier. You figured out what not to do. Yeah. And, you know, and I mean, still it's weird because you don't have pages coming in. Right. And once the first page comes in, it changes your entire concept of how comics are produced. Um, but I studied, I studied all that stuff. And, and eventually um, my friend, Kevin Thurman uh, was going to produce a comic and he, you know, had been working on comic scripts. And, and my thing was always like, okay, this is great. He worked on Sequart with me. And I said, you know, how we'd done some movies together about comic subjects, documentaries. And, and I said, you know, that's great, but you know, how the hell are we going to pay for this? Um, that was always my thing. You know, I'm a very sort of um, shoot for the stars, over ambitious kind of guy, but I'm also oddly practical. And so, so it was like, all right, how is this going to happen? And he sort of retooled his pitch to sort of involve my sort of like fake Martian backstory for Martian Lit, the uh, sort of non-Sequart uh, fiction publishing company I had started, um, which the joke was like, you know, it was started by Martians and, you know, the planetary which, council. Right, and the whole, the whole about us section is written <laughs> in that way, like in that vein of this is real, like in the, what is it, the second vampire, in the vampire list at, like right at the beginning, they're like, oh yeah, 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 the vampire, the interview with the vampires on the fiction shelf where it belongs. Like she totally begins that book pretending that that was real. So I, I appreciate that you do that in there. And it's like, there's the whole about us and Martian with, it's like, listen, you know, we, we, we we are tired of the Martian, you know, uh, oppression in the way that you you misrepresent us in your fiction. I thought that was just so brilliant. I loved it. Yeah. yeah well, you know, we're, we're sick of these Martian stereotypes. The We've Martian been stereotype. through War of the Worlds, you know, how many times, you know, right. we yeah. get it. You hate us. You hate us for no reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, Kevin, Kevin sort of retooled it that way. And I was like, oh, okay. Now this is using like my IP, right? <laughs> like, you know, I was yeah, like, yeah. okay. And so we sort of worked on the scripts together and that sort of became what, what turned into Girl from Mars. And, you know, that took years to, to gestate and, and finally get made. And by the time it was made, it was like, well, I, I, I do this thing where everything I do, I mean, <laughs> if you've read anything that I've ever written, it's overwritten, right? Um, I, I have like a, a, an idea for a short, a short novel or a, or a short book on comics and it's, I'm like, I swear to God, it's going to be a hundred pages in and out. I'm going to be done in like a month. And a month later, it's like, yeah, this is probably a three book thing. <laughs> right, <laughs> but they need a volume two. Yeah. 
But that's because of the research, because of the the academic person that you are. The thing about academia, and I'm married to a librarian, so like we live like research is real, like research is life, and you don't just you don't just whatever the first thing you can find isn't it's never good enough. It may you may you may come back to that first thing that you found, but you better go find ten more things. So that's part of it too, right? Is just is because of that nature, you're digging and you're digging, and you're like, oh shit, there's these ten other things. That I didn't even see when my when I wrote my initial thesis, and now I I can't I can't not talk about them. I can't just pretend I didn't find that research. So I'm going to put a pin in this, and so now I'm going to have to spin this off. So that's I mean I just think that's thorough research. I mean you you say that it's overwritten, I say it's thorough. Yeah. Well, you know it's thorough. It's also insane, right? Because <laughs> like I don't need uh, more projects. Um, I you know I do think I'm I'm utterly mad. Um, you know, I was thinking in preparation for this, like how uh, completely overcommitted I am about absolutely everything that I do. Um, and the ultimate example of this is, uh, you mentioned I've got a transformer shirt yeah. on. I am making a 3D printed transformer that's like two feet tall. And it's like maybe a third done. I have to get back to it. All of my hobbies are like insane things that are gonna <laughs> take me though. years to finish. <laughs> but that, who, you, who are you making? Uh, I'm making broadside. Oh, nice. Okay. Cool. Uh, the, but it's my version of broadside as a as a Titan class uh, hmm. transformer. Uh, nice. We'll match up with the Metroplex and and Fort Max Titan class ones. That's amazing. That'll yeah. be cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I you know the thing is about and I heard you you know you and Scott talked about transformers on, on on his show and on your show you guys did the the cartoon and then you talked about the toys and the way that they've just influenced your life and how you even give the Michael Bay Transformers movies a bigger pass than most people do just because you love Transformers so much. And I get it. I do. I mean, it's a visual feast. I'm never going to pretend that a Michael Bay movie isn't amazing to see. I just don't know what the fuck is going on most of the time. I'm like, wait, you know, I mean, Bumblebee to me, it was like, imagine if Bumblebee was the first Transformers movie. Mm. It would, it would have changed. They wouldn't have made as much money. Unfortunately, that's the thing. Like you can only make Bumblebee because the other Transformers movies made so much money. Bumblebee was so good. <laughs> you know, it was like such a human story, which I think is what you like about them, right? Is there's this, oh, yeah. like you talked about, like the alienation and everything. Part of being a Transformers is we aren't what we think we are, and there it's a, it's a lonely. It can be a lonely existence to be ignored in plain sight. So I get you know the the layer that's there. Also, they're cool toys. So yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I will say I don't want to get distracted yeah. on a, a Michael Bay conversation, sure. but, you know, Michael Bay is like the, the, the stereo, uh, I mean, you and I are academics, right? Okay. So yeah. I, I can say this. I'm sure nobody listening to this isn't an academic. <laughs> uh, Michael Bay is like the stereotypical straight white man's version of an auteur, right? Yeah. <laughs> like yeah, he, absolutely. he has that mentality. He's like, you know, go for that butt shot but it is a beautifully photographed butt shot. You know, like the plot doesn't really matter, you know? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a fascinating train wreck, <laughs> you know? Oh, and you just, can't, uh, I've <laughs> seen them all. I mean, there's, I've seen them all, of course. And my oldest, uh, well, my, my wife and I blended. So my oldest biological daughter, our second oldest daughter of the four daughters we have, she and I will hate watch the Transformers. That was like a, that was like a thing we would do together. Those and then the new, like, um, the Godzilla and the Kong movies, mm. those are things we like to hate watch together because we're like, 
visually it's so amazing to see, but what is happening? So it's kind of like <laughs> our own little Mystery Science Theater 3000. We sit, we watch these and are like, you know, that is such a pretty thing to see. Like the dinosaurs, the, the Transformer dinosaurs, like we, with that whole movie, we're like all jazzed up for that. And then they're like 10 minutes at the end. Yeah, and they just appear out of nowhere. nowhere. It's just like, you know, they're just like in China and they're just like, you know, it's time to awaken the ancient knights. And he goes into like some valley that's next yeah. to a city and suddenly they come out of the caves and it's like nobody wandered two miles outside of the nope. city. To, but it doesn't matter because yep. cool giant robot dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares? yeah, that was all we wanted. Yeah, so anyway. So you're right. Everything you say about that is true. I mean, he makes all that money. Again, going back to the beginning, he makes plenty of money for a reason. Yeah. Right? There's no, there's no doubt about that. So well, the other thing that's interesting about Transformers is that Transformers kind of epitomizes, I mean, I, I haven't been a consistent Transformers fan since, since the eighties, I've been in and out. And one of the things that I love about it now is how stupid it is. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, like fundamentally, this is a franchise about, you know, like robots, you get your awesome robots fighting, but they turn into jets and cars. Like, that's awesome. Like, you know, and they turn into tape decks and hide in people's houses. Like, that's so incredibly cool. Like my brain just fires and I love that, but it doesn't make any sense. No right. Sense. So the goal is like to figure out how to make it make sense, but also find, you know, for me, so much of it is just like recapturing that childlike joy that I had, including reading comics of just, you know how like you, you, I mean, it was older than my generation, but you know how you'd, you'd pick up like a, a reprint of like 60s DC comics and it'd be like, you know, Flash, like crucified with his limbs stretched, like yeah. he's made of jelly, you know, and, and, you know, he's, he's coming apart at the seams and, you know, somebody is there saying like, you know, pointing a gun at him saying, you know, I'm turning you into sound soon. You will disincorporate. And you're just like, what is going on? <laughs> you know? And, and that was just Julius Schwartz saying like, that's a cool cover. You figure out the story. Yeah. And that's obviously like a, a horrible way to write, but at the same time, it's kind of cool the ways that we, those like lit up our brain as kids and made us think about those things. Um, so I think there's a kind of like balance between, uh, and I think as, as I get older, I am rediscovering just that sheer joy for its own sake, right? Sure, um, yeah. But there's a balance between like what's just fun and crazy and what is like a responsible narrative, right? So like Bay does not know the responsible narrative part. He does not, no. Yeah, but I mean, look, the Marvel movies don't either. They're just oh, a no. little more coherent. A little. I mean, it depends on who's in charge. It depends. You're right. And that it really does depend on who who wrote that one and who is the director. And there's definitely more competent directors. Like, I mean, the reason, you know, that Black Panther's so good is because you had a competent scriptwriter, a competent director. The whole team was so they were like, We're telling a story. It's gonna have a it's going to follow a hero's, we have a hero's journey. We're going to tell it and we're going to do it correctly. Um, whereas it's like, let's just make this look super cool. Like, you know, the reason that Thor 2 fell apart is because they weren't sure. They're like, let's just make it look pretty. And it does. Thor 2 looks a pretty. There's no doubt about it. But like, it was so bad that Natalie Portman left the series. She was like, what yeah. is that? What is, what was I just in? Like, <laughs> did I sign up for that shit? So I think, yeah, I think you're totally right. That, that it all depends on. And I think, well, look at, I'm going to tie it into your book. See, because you, you talk about a, a, a narrative, Martian Lit is you've been doing this for years, right? So like that idea of, I want to have a through narrative, 
you, I read them recently. I bought them. I got, I was part of the Kickstarter to put them out in volumes. And I am ashamed to say I hadn't been God reading them all you. along. I, I was <laughs> Thank you. Million to do it. Mille fois. Thrilled to do it. I love, I love them. Now, obviously now I won't wait and I'll try, I'll keep up as the, as the new one comes out. But you have this, you've created a story that you're trusting your readers to pay attention and to remember what happened. And so I'm, I'm at an advantage where I'm reading them all together as a volume where these took you years. So I wonder, um, and this goes, and this ties right into what you're saying with the, with the kind of the silliness of Transformers. It's like they were this cool idea when they were created as toys. And then when they were like, well, let's turn these toys into a show and how can we make this more than just, I mean, it was clearly a cash grab, but there were real writers and real animators working. And that everyone agrees that Transformers, the movie, the cartoon, it was really good. I mean, I know it was a cash grab that they were trying to bring in new toys. It was really well done. Um, and so there's a story there too. And they tried to create a mythology of, of you know, a, the history of these beings. And you're doing that with your story because you even have given them dates. There's like Martian years. And, and, I, and like, so I'm just curious about like, how important was that to you as, a, as an academic, as somebody who studies literature and your doctorate is in, is in literature, English. correct? Yeah. Is in English. Okay. So, so like that was always there. So, so as you were writing this and you've, you've already said you kind of overwrite, but, but I guess the best place for us to start is how much has the story evolved as you've gone? And, and did you always know, okay, I'm going to, I know where I'm at. Like, we don't know where you're ending. Do you know where it's ending? Or is the point of this can go on in perpetuity? Um, and do you have to go back and reread what you wrote? Like, what did I say in issue one? What year was that? Like, do you, you know, like, I'm just curious about the nuts and bolts of it before we get into the, into the why of it all. Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating question. I don't think anyone's ever asked me. Um, I know where it ends. Okay. I don't know if that's going to be the definitive ending. Um, you know, I mean, I might decide there's stuff to do after that, but um, in uh, you know what the the next issue of Martian Comics to come out as we're recording this is number twenty, number twenty five. I mean, is the art's already done? Um, has a couple stories that are set in the future. Oh right, because you even say like you you tease that, and you're like all the Martian cities are like yet to be revealed. I'm like, well, damn. So that is also, you're letting us know you've got bigger plans, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. I mean, I, I struggle with this all the time. Like, I don't know what the, these comics read like to anyone because like even in Martian Comics Volume 1, um, there are a number of sort of like mysteries. Um, you know, there's there are references to things that just I have not shown anyone. Um and I know what happens in those stories. <laughs> you know, in some cases I've written them, partially written them, um, haven't written them, but I know what's going on in those years. There's stuff that I, that I don't know that's, you know, things have to be allowed to evolve as you're writing them. But, you know, for me, I mean, I have, I write like, I, I don't know anybody else who writes like this and I, and I don't advise anyone else to write like this. Um, I always kind of write, I never write straight through. So everybody else I know, most people just, they write from start to finish and then they get to the end and they're like, yeah, you know, like, um, I have to change those early scenes because this is not the same character anymore. And now I've, I've got to change that stuff to, to make it sync up. 
I always hated revision. So I would, I would outline stuff in my head. And so for me, the way I write tends to be, uh, it's a very structuralist approach. I will know the ending. Like I, I almost never know it. I almost never start writing anything that I don't know the ending. I mean, to me, the ending is so important to a story. I think most stories fall down in their endings. Um, I want to make sure that that ending is right. So almost always, even if it's an eight page or, or uh, 800 page, I know what that ending is. But then I also have sort of like scenes along the way. And those scenes might be um, just a visual, right? They might just be um, something that emotionally is at the core of that story or, or is just that like mind blowing sort of like Transformers fun moment. Um, it could be anything, but I know I have to get to that moment. And sometimes I'll write it, sometimes it's in my head. So I'll sort of like write these little like sort of tent poles and I know like about how many pages there should be between these moments, right? Like, I mean, you can't go from, you know, somebody like ascending the throne to being like an old king in two pages, right? I mean, no, you should be some way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be, you want to explore that stuff and you want the reader to feel like they've gone on a journey. I mean, if you've got characters going to a destination, that that travel if you want them to feel like it's a lord of the rings adventure you can't just be like well i just care about the destination and the the leaving so well, let's just skip all that yeah. you don't want to put in filler but you know you you've got to have a kind of sense of balance so i sort of write in this weird way where i don't write chronologically i don't write straight through and that's true about stories but it's also true about the larger universe um so what you're talking about is basically a timeline that spans 10,000 Martian years, which is about 18,000 Earth years. Um, there's a timeline in there. Um, and <laughs> well, I mean, essentially what I would like to do, and I don't know if I'll ever be able to do this, is that basically almost, I mean, every, basically every millennium or so, is about a full omnibus verse full of stories. Um, and I know sort of like there's a there's a voice in my head that's like, I'm the Martian historian. I know what like that first millennium of Martian history is about. I know what that second millennium is about. I know what that, and it's not exactly, you know, sometimes it's like the 20th century, you know, 21st century started on 9-11, right? I mean, it's not exactly year to year, but it's like, what is the thrust of that? that era of Martian history, what is that really about? So I know these key points. I know where it's ultimately going. I know what happens in the year 10,000 and, you know, a little nice. thereafter. Um, and, you know, yeah, so I don't know. All of this is quite insane. And there are different threads through all of this history. Um, I mean, that evolved relatively early where, there was like a, you know, sort of like a robots thread. There was like a space colonization thread. There was the sort of interaction with Earth thread and how that changed over time, the different paradigms of, of Mars-Earth relations. Um, and there were a lot of those threads that in time have spun off additional threads. And now there's like a mythology thread of stories that explore um, the Martian polytheism that uh, at least of early Mars before it entered its space age. Um, and those are kind of interesting stories. And, you know, there's 12 cities, there's actually 13. 
There's 13. Uh, well, actually, I, I want to stop you there only because that's one of the, the pages I, I read it digitally. So I actually screenshotted and blew this page up because I was like, okay, when we get to this and you led me there. So I'm going to interrupt you to ask you this. <laughs> Good. So my favorite, so in the, when we're learning the history of the 13th city, part of it, you know, um, a little bit when the, when all the girls go in on their 14th birthday, their bat mitzvahs, as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, and you say, uh, and it's not that word, and they're not that they're not Jewish, everybody. They're, that's not a thing on Mars, but I'm just trying to Have give you an idea. Yeah, yeah, there's no problems at all. <laughs> on their elongated skulls. <laughs> on their elongated heads with gills, yeah. So, but the line is, and this is a line I loved, and I thought, okay, we have to talk about this because I think this kind of encapsulates for me with the whole, what's happening in both versions that I've read and, and obviously what's to come in the line is, um, historians will tell, tell you uh, that Nashola and Thay may have not even lived. And of course, there's no evidence that giants once ruled the world, but myths never claim to be literally true in every aspect. And you, you bolded and you're doing your own letters. So it's like, mm -hmm. okay, so you've done literary, literally true and like, so or in, in bold. So like that jumped out at me is this idea of here's this story, you know, there's like this other secret story. And the fact that you chose to say, um, no, but myths never claim to be literally true, but they're not claiming to not be true at all. And so you say that without saying that. So when I'm reading that line, you're like, what you're, what this woman is, this storyteller is telling these 14 year old girls is you have to, you're, you're asking them to know, you're asking them to believe, but you're asking, also asking them to ask questions and find out their own versions of the truth. And that it's almost as though like as you were saying, like as you were saying before, you know, you start with 100 pages. Now you've got 300 pages. This is that research. This is that dig into the thing and this look at our own. Because I always feel like every when you do have a specific Martian Earth relation story here, I always feel like you're also making commentary about us, about Earth, mm -hmm. about humanity, and all living creatures, and the way we tell stories and the importance of story. So anyway, so that line jumped out at me, and I just went, and because you're kind of taking me there, I thought so. Am I wrong on that? Am I misreading that? That what you're telling us as the reader is now you got to go back. Now you're here. When you're all done, you're going to have to go read this again because am I leaving you breadcrumbs for a second layer of stories that are hidden in here? If you see them, do I have to go back through and look at all the backgrounds and be like, okay, you're telling me there's more than one story that you're even showing me. Is that mm -hmm. true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's true. I, I think that it also gets at something that, you know, without being, you know, too political, it also gets at something that I live in Florida and shit on my governor all the time on the show. So, well, you have a shitty governor, you know? like the worst governor. <laughs> so go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I live in Illinois and I, 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 you know, as messed up as Illinois is, I yeah. thank God every day it's a blue state. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, uh, the daughter I was telling you about Emma, she lives in Chicago. So she's, uh, mm -hmm. she's in a city where they have a mayor who wants them to live. I know. How crazy is what that? A, what a crazy you know, science. <laughs> It's a good thing, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe it's got some ideas that we should listen to. Maybe. Um, I don't know. But, anyway. but I think that, I think that, you know, we're in the middle of a cultural conversation. I think it's a, it's a scary and uncomfortable con conversation about myths and about the stories we tell. And I think that, I mean, that whole story is also about those women and it's a sort of, um, uh, diptych with the previous story, uh, Safari, about sort of men being initialized uh, into manhood by going on this hunt and, and killing humans. Um, 
you know, which sort of inverses the sort of power dynamic, you know, how do you, how does one feel about that? Um, this story is a, you know, is a quieter story, but I think that, you know, I've done a lot of thinking about what we take away from these movies, from these comics, from, from also the religious myths that, that we hear. And I think even being exposed to them alters what we think of as normal, what we think of as the, the kind of associations that we make in our mind. So, I mean, having defended Michael Bay, um, the, the idea that all of, you know, I mean, I am sick of uh, white male protagonists and, and I don't mean to, to hit on, uh, I mean, look, I, I will tell anybody who says I'm never going to watch a movie starring, you know, or a book written by a white man ever again. Okay, well, you hate literature, go away now. Yeah. Um, having said that, uh, you know, I am kind of horrified by, and I don't mean to overemphasize it, but by, you know, the sort of like Iron Man thing of, no, you're, you're the villain here. You have, un, you are, you have caused all of the problems, but because you're charming and because you're rich and powerful, all of that is kind of wiped away. And I think that the stories that we tell ourselves going back to, you know, going back to the Iliad and the Odyssey are about powerful white men who make terrible mistakes, get a lot of people killed, uh, you know, rape people, murder people, slaughter people. But in the end, they're still considered heroes. And I think that even if we don't buy that and we want to deconstruct that, we've got to do the work of deconstructing that. And I think that there's a way in which myths and stories, even when we know that they're fiction, um, affect us and, and make us see, uh, associate even you know, kinds of experiences and kinds of objects with positive attributes, negative attributes, and it gets in our brain and we have to kind of like rewire that to even question all of that. Um, and, and maybe sometimes we can go too far and, and over question it and say, you know, um, well, that myth isn't literally true. Well, that doesn't mean there isn't something worth preserving. Um, I mean, Odysseus is wily and there are things that are quite admirable about him. That doesn't mean that he's heroic, you know, in our present day sense. Yeah, right. He's garbage in a lot of ways. He does. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there's that. It's that. It's the perpetuation of the. Um, as long as I'm providing for my family in some weird way, um, I don't have to actually be a father. Because um, you mm -hmm. know the whole thing at the end with his son. It's like, wait a minute, wait. <laughs> you've just left your mother to. You've been raised by your mother, and there's this. And actually reading, um, I just finished uh, the new Pitticus Lord book, which is not very mm -hmm. good, but I find those fascinating. And, you know, it's an interesting scam those Pitticus Lord guys have, right? They like hire, it's all a collective of writers who are publishing under the name Pitticus Lord. So the new one that comes out next year, I got an arc of it. It's, it was uh, the Odyssey. As I was done reading it, I'm like, well, this is a poor man's Odyssey because it is, but told from the son's perspective, it's like the dad's gone missing and now the son's got to go into space to find his dad. Like, that's the story. I'm like, okay, that's what you're doing. You're telling me Odyssey in reverse. And it's not great. It was, it was a story about aliens and monsters and mm -hmm. you know, traveling through wormholes. So I read it because I'm, I'm not against reading trash as you were defending yeah. Michael Bay earlier. It's fine. <laughs> I, I had a great time. You know, I mean, it's not good. But it's fine. It was a good book. And I read it all from beginning to end yesterday. So hooray. Um, but it's funny, because, you know, like you said, those stories that are constantly being retold, and that, and that I think, 
there is always a nugget of truth in mythology. And it's, it is whether it is about, because it's easy to say, oh, well, you know, it's straight white guys and, or just white guys in general. So, you know, Whitman's obviously a white guy, not a straight white guy. But so you've got these guys who these white guys who are, who are the pantheon of literature, but there is always nuggets of truth. There is some self-reflection there. I mean, you could read Odysseus or read the Odyssey as like, he's a hero, or you could read it as like, hey, this isn't a how-to manual. I'm not telling you how, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, but we unfortunately, yeah. and I think, so that line in there about that this isn't literally true, I feel like that's what she was saying too. And that's what you're telling me too, is like, you, I got to go back to the beginning of, of Marsha Lit now that I've read through it all based on that line, be like, you're also in within your own comic, you have a story within a story. In addition to you making a comment about earth fiction, you're also making a comment about your own story that, like you said, they, they're connected. The two stories were back to back, of course. But now I also have to go back and read like the girl from Mars differently mm -hmm. knowing, because that's also just told from the perspective of one guy's version of the truth. So I mm -hmm. need to go back through and be like, okay, well, what is, what is he, what is true and what is literally true and what is sort of true. And so I feel like you as a writer telling me as a reader, this may all not be accurate. It's fun, <laughs> but also um, it's fun for me because it's like, oh, cool. You're, you're, you're inviting your readers to read it more than once by doing mm -hmm. that, right? You don't want this to be um, just an eight page because some of your stories are real short. Some are 30 pages, some are eight pages because that's just, I'm assuming the time that you have with the artists and like this is, this, this I mean, next issue. Actually, that is that is the coolest thing about this is um, one of the things writing those 10,000 pages before mm -hmm. I ever wrote comics, I realized very quickly that the like 20 page to 24 page sort of chopped up installment format was just terrible. Um, I mean, if there's one thing. Work. No, I mean, and, and a story should be allowed to evolve to the size and space that it needs. Um, and I get I get pages back sometimes where I'm like, yeah, we need an, another page here just for the pacing to work, where I can commission that additional page. And so none. So there's never been a decision made about length based on time I had with the artist. Oh, it's good. all based on me and what I think is the proper length for that story. Um, so I let the story be what it wants to be. Um, and, and along that vein, um, the I sort of yeah, I was talking about sort of like my process of having these sort of like tent poles that then the story falls around. It takes me a long time to write, and one of the reasons is I sort of live with that story. I roll that story around in my head. I dream of that story, and somehow over days, months, sometimes years that story kind of grows and I learn not just what the sort of emotional through line is, you know, the sort of like boil it down to what is the story about, but also all of the themes and secondary themes and tertiary themes and ways in which, you know, I mean, theme has been reduced now in, in, in modern narrative to like, you know, um, yeah, it's the theme of family in, you know, in, in the Odyssey or something. Yeah, that's pretty obvious, right? right. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a, there are deeper themes about, uh, about, you know, you were getting into like, you know, fatherhood. There are deeper themes about um, uh, power and how it's properly exercised. Um, you know, about, you know, I mean, that includes, you know, how Cersei exercises power. Um, 
and and I think as these things roll around in my head, I sort of become much more aware of all of the themes that a story touches on and needs to have kind of delicately interwoven into the narrative without putting, you know, too masturbatory fine a point on it. And <laughs> that's, a, that's a shirt you should make. Not to put too, too masturbatory <laughs> fine a point on it. That's a... But people will be like, what? Put that on a mug. You're like, but the thing is, nobody's going to come out away with, with right. the, the same points that I have, right? I mean, you know, I've had people talk to me about, I mean, you have people, I mean, I remember uh, the epitome of this for me is I remember there was a con where we had done, um, we were really big into, we published the first book at Sequard about Grant Morrison, the first critical book we did documentary about him we were real big into grant morrison studies early and i remember um, as well you should have been That's yeah good. and yeah, yeah and grant's great and yeah. has is has been a really nice guy to me and to sequart um but uh we had a guy come up to the table at one of these cons and i i don't know who this was and and bless him i'm not singling him out but he said uh you know i really love that you did this because um, Grant is such an awesome writer. He started and ended Doom Patrol with a Smith's quote. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, I love him. That's for me. And I thought, okay, fine. I listened to the Smiths also, you know, mm -hmm. as a kid. But that's what you got out of this. <laughs> you know, it's like we all come from our different perspectives. And usually when people talk about a story that I've written, they get very different things out of it than, than I intended. And if they caught, you know, say two out of the five themes that, that I think are there, uh, I'm happy. And they're not wrong about those other things that they're seeing. And I want them to do that. I want them to interrogate it and, and second guess it. And, and then real quick, the other thing I was gonna say about yeah. what you said was that I don't believe in reliable narrators. Uh, and this is something that gets me into trouble. And this is a fight I had with creative writing professors is like, yeah, you kind of have to believe that somebody is a reliable narrator in lots of circumstances in fiction. But you want, there are also these kinds of moments where you realize like in Girl from Mars is being narrated by, you know, like this sort Several. of Dick Cheney CEO, Ugh, he's the evil, worst. you know, well, you know, but he's also like, I find him kind of charming. He's got a worldview. It's an, it's it, less defensible than like Magneto or something. He's got a worldview in which, you know, what he's doing isn't as bad as anyone else. Um, he's not but, a racist. He doesn't understand racism at all. Like, <laughs> the line where he's like, because of course, obviously on Mars, people who've not read this, which you should be, what is wrong with you? But in your, like the, the women on Mars are red and then, or the men on Mars are red and the women on Mars are blue and that's it. So color just is a gender signifier. It's nothing else. Mm -hmm. And so like for this guy, the evil Dick Cheney guy, as you call him, which is great. I didn't think of him that way, but now that's all. I mean, you put him in Dallas. So I guess I should have, but, um, but you know, he's like, I don't understand racism. And like, he goes into this whole thing about how awful racism is while he's in the middle of telling a story about, um, you know, all the people he's killed and his assistant is bleeding out on the floor. I was like, that is such a nice way for us to be like, you know, like those people who are like Thanos is right. And like, that was your Thanos is right moment. You're like, son of a bitch, that guy's such a bitch. <laughs> but he was right about that. So <laughs> that was real smart. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. I, I find him probably more charming than other people do. I mean, but yeah. you know, um, I, I, I was just listening to uh, before we got on uh, to, 
some old podcasts and and I was listening to the the uh, Ghostbusters on trial one and I kept thinking like I love unlikable narrators uh, you know or unlikable protagonists um, I have much more of a tolerance for that than other people do uh, or seem to I love like it's like have you watched American Psycho like you know like you know you don't have to agree with a character to find that character fascinating and even to find that character I mean, like, that's a totally unreliable narrator, but he's fascinating. But there's also a kind of, I mean, I hate to say it, there's a kind of nobility to him underneath that is maybe like 15% of his character. But there's, there's a nobility of like, uh, I'm trying here, I'm trying to be a better person, kind of knowing I'm a sociopath. I'm still talking about like the rainforest and stuff because I think I should because that's what good people do. Uh, like I'm trying to be a little better even though I'm obviously a murderous sociopath and I kind of want to get caught. To me, to me, uh, that CEO in uh, Girl from Mars, there's a kind of like, yeah, you know, like he he did it. Uh, you know, it's that sort of like, yeah, I, I built this company. I've killed, I'm responsible for millions of people dying. But, you know, I... He's that sort of, um, you know, that conservative thing of like, uh, yeah, you know, I built it. Yes, a lot of people died in those mines, but we've got that iron for the Empire State Building came from my mines. You know? Right. Like, yeah. Yeah. No, I think one. Well, I think he. The reason that that he's such a fascinating character is the devil you call him because he doesn't really have a name because he's you know he's not. That's how he kind of refers to himself, as it were. And he's the, the mastermind, a century of all of the 20th century. Um, and he, right, he's, the thing about him, the difference between him and Bateman, of course, I thought about Bateman a little, because I did wonder in a few places when I'm reading this, it's like, is this real? Is this real? Again, going back to this other piece, because that's the order I read them. I read Martian Lit before I read Girls from Mars. So, so you've told me not everything in that I'm about to see is literally, literally true. You've told me that. So, and because it's from his perspective and he's this loud mouth, you know, blowhard. So I don't necessarily have to believe everything you could come. He could totally be just a tinfoil hat serial killer. You know, I, I, I'm not 100% convinced that Patrick Bateman kills anybody. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I'm you not could either. argue he kills everybody. You could argue he just kills the homeless guy. You could argue he kills nobody and that he, this is a Holden Caulfield I'm telling you this from a mental institution. We don't know. So that's what I kept thinking about with this guy is like, he's telling his own story. He's making his own mythology up. Mm -hmm. And so is this true? Is this not true? Is he, is he insane? So I just found it a fascinating thing. But then, then you drop these nuggets of like, I also don't understand racism. I also don't understand like you're destroyed. Like I'm just trying to kill people, but you guys are trying to destroy the earth. I'm not trying to destroy the earth. You know, so it's like, oh, it, it was just a, it was such a cool way for you to, and he's not, and he does have a mustache, but he's not like a mustache curly, <laughs> you know, villain. Um, he's layered. And I think the best villains have to be layered. If the, if he's just Snidely whiplash, then that's boring. Then all he can do is tie, you know, tie her to the train tracks and wait. Yeah, he. I, I do want to say, like, I love what you're saying. He doesn't want to kill people. Right. It's that killing people is a side effect of. Now, I mean, there's stuff that we haven't gotten to in Girl from Mars, and it'll take years to get to in terms of. Yeah, because it kind of reviews. ends. Like you, you, we're still going to be sitting in that room listening to him talk for a while. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah. but yeah. yeah, no, it's fine. I'm okay uh, with it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that volume one ends in '68, and volume two, which we're almost done with, ends at least the art and, and the scripting. Volume two ends in I think '87. Um, and, and then in theory, volume three brings us up to the present or at least 2014. Um, and yeah, I mean, he does have, he does have a name. There's, there's other stuff going on here, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like, I feel like he's somebody who I, I want, you know, they said that like, you want to have a coffee with a drink with George W. Bush. Right. Um, I, I, I'd like to. I mean, I think he's a war criminal. I think he belongs sure. to the Hague. That doesn't mean I wouldn't have a fun time having a beer with him. Um, I'm perfectly capable of getting those two things in my head. I'd love to meet Skilling and talk with him, but I don't want him to know who I am and you know ever yeah, yeah. be able to think about me ever again. Right. You know? Yeah. You just want to kind of serve him in a restaurant or something and get to over here. Yeah. It is that he is. And I, I what I like about the Girl from Mars stories is that you've, cleverly given us two point of view characters for us to, because, because again, the way that I've read them by reading the Martian lit first, I know about Mars. So then when I meet <clears throat> our Martian, who's, who's taken over the body of our main female protagonist in the girl from Mars, the girl, the titular girl, we can feel what it's like for her because we've seen this before. We understand Mars and now we understand what it's like for a Martian to be on earth and how limiting it is and all that good stuff. So that's super cool. But then you bring her sister in, and I think that was really smart to have a human, an unaware human, so that if someone picks up Girl from Mars first, that person has a different way in. So that was a real, and so was that always the plan to have both of the sisters, or was like when you originally, in your first outlining, where you're like, okay, well, I'm just going to tell this story about this, the girl from Mars, like one Martian coming face to face with another Martian on Earth. And then trusting the reader to come along or were you like, and again, I still feel like you, you don't ever, you don't ever, you're not that person. Like you trust us to figure shit out. So I appreciate that. But um, I just wonder, was that sister always going to be there? Or was she just a cool way for other people to get into it? Um, yeah, I don't, there's so much that I, I, I used to make notes of like all of my process and stuff. And oh, now okay. I'm just like, I don't even, I, you, you know, I'm care. just like, nobody cares. I, I don't I, know. I mean, I, yeah, I think. The sister came in pretty early. I mean, remembering how this sort of evolved, that first chapter of Girl from Mars, um, you know, sort of like was on its own. Um, and then I sort of outlined a sort of 12, cha 12 short chapter. Originally, Girl from Mars was going to be like 100 pages. And, you know. <laughs> and volume I, one is 212. <laughs> yeah, uh, and that's one of three, right? Okay. And and that's okay. And little secret, that's yeah. one of three. Just to get you to the end of that history stuff, there's another whole back half. Oh, nice. Uh, nice. So, so yeah. I mean, the the sister came in relatively early, and and I mean, it's. I feel bad because it's called the girl from Mars, and yet for three volumes, it's going to be like you know, uh, Patrick Bateman slash you know. Um, you know, arms dealer, uh, Destro narrating, you know, the history of the 20th century. Um, having said that, that whole back half is really about that relationship. And it, it really is ultimately the story of uh, those two women. And, but 
the title seems like a complete misnomer <laughs> at this point. Well, it, I see it. I hear what you're saying. I guess I didn't feel that way because she's a she. Without her, there's no story. Like you can't. Mm-hmm. You you need someone. There needs to be a reason for all of for this guy to want to, you know, Bond villain his way through his life and feel comfortable doing it. And the only way he can do that, he's not going to tell an Earthling any of this stuff. They think he's full of shit or he's whatever he's they'd lock him up but because he had to find another martian so it needs to be and she is well she's an adult woman she's a freshman in college so she's 18 19 years old the the, mm-hmm. the body of the woman she is still a girl in the sense that this this martian is new to earth so she is truly like a toddler in this adult woman's body trying to figure things out and the her awkwardness and the way that she's trying to um, maneuver, even though Martians are so far more advanced in your, you know, than humans are. Anytime you go somewhere new, you're like a child again. So I thought the I thought the name was fine because then now this is also a way for us, as people who are history nerds, to find this really fascinating view of this early of the 20th century. What a cool, you know, because a lot of it it's like, um, I really appreciated the the look at Eisenhower, particularly just as a history nerd who, who is, you know, politically independent, who's definitely like you, who's, you know, way more liberal than anything, but, you know, I don't want to be a party. I, I wish I didn't have to pick a political party, but in Florida, I can't vote in primaries if I don't pick a political party. It's nonsense. Um, so, I, so obviously I've, I've had to make- I just want to say, I wish I didn't have to pick a political party too. Yeah. The problem is there's one party that wants an America and there's another party that wants a dictatorship. Right, and I wish exactly. That the case. Right, exactly. So you have to pick one. That's exactly <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So, but what I like, what I like about, um, you know, that that look at Eisenhower is, I think, because Eisenhower has an R next to his name, he's always, um, people forget about him. People forget he could have easily been a Democrat. Like Eisenhower could never be a, Eisenhower would be a Democrat today. Eisenhower mm-hmm. couldn't be elected. He couldn't even win the Republican nomination at all and so i just that look at eisenhower and like the fact that there were people historically who stood up against our villain but who also stood up against bad shit in general and so our our villain our guy telling us the history of the way he's manipulated the world it also shows how hard he had to work to get around that sometimes uh, and i'm hoping that because you keep bringing those people up malcolm x is, is in there as someone who couldn't be manipulated. So you keep pointing out people who couldn't be manipulated, who you couldn't get hold of as almost like a reminder again to our to our titular girl from Mars. He's giving her a roadmap of how to stand up to him, whether he realizes he's doing it or not. That's what I see anyway. So I just appreciated that like from a history buff perspective of like, I always like it when I, and Eisenhower was not a perfect man. He's the one who put under God in the Pledge of Allegiance, which is bullshit on a stick. So whatever. And he wasn't even a religious guy. He was having an affair. He's no hero. But um, historically, like he stood up to things. And so I just like you having a few of those people in there. Um, There's no question there. Sorry, I was just gushing compliments on you. I just loved it. (laughs) Is all I'm saying. (laughs) That's incredibly kind of you. I mean, let's let's history geek out here. I mean, I do sometimes think that I mean, even the Martian stories are very much about history and how history moves and how we understand history. I mean, I would say about all of those figures in, in Girl from Mars, um, you know, we are all trapped in time. Uh, this has never been more apparent to me than, you know, going through a year of COVID. Um, I mean, and, and, and look, going through the fear of 
living in a country that is uh, falling, its democracy is falling apart and knowing that there's only so much you can do and every day is a nightmare. Right. Um, and the best thing that I can, you know, have been able to tell anyone about that is just, this is what it feels like. You know, this is what it felt like in the 30s in Germany. Um, you know, that's not an exaggeration. Ask a historian of that period. It's not at all. Yeah. No. And, and you know, but the thing is, you can know it's going to work out. You can know, like, you know, those kids are not going to be in cages in 10 years. Right. Right. We know that. But right now they're in cages and there's no avenue to get them out. And we're just trapped day after day after day, knowing that's the case, knowing history is on our side. There is no version of this in which that's going to be the case 10 years on. But we have to live those intervening years and those and the, the, the stress and the tension of that and, and, and the way you second guess yourself and you say, am I right about that? Am I just reassuring myself? Um, you know, history is, we're all trapped in time. And so we have to live that anxiety. We have to live that uncertainty. Um, and also we are prisoners of our era. We are prisoners oh, yeah. of our values. And, you know, looking back, um, you know, I grew up a huge fan of uh, Woodrow Wilson um, because of the League of Nations. Uh, I am a huge fan of the League of Nations and the United Nations. Having said that, Wilson was an avowed racist who segregated uh, uh, Washington, D.C. And he played I mean, Birth of a Nation at the White House. <laughs> exactly. Fucker. Like, I mean, you know, <laughs> black people don't tend to be as favorable of Woodrow Wilson and for very good reasons. And so, I mean, he, and in, you know, he was a Democrat. Um, you know, all of these are complicated figures. You can be somebody who is both a visionary and a backwards, you know, F-hole, you know, um, you can be somebody who is uh, right about certain things and, and dead wrong about others. Um, and I think that, and you can evolve. Um, I hope that, I hope that I will die in a country in which I am a conservative. I hope that I will die with history having moved on, um, you know, where I can, I can say, you know, I, I, this stuff is really awesome. That other stuff, I don't know. And, yeah. and that's part of progress. <laughs> right. That's yeah. part of progress. You know, yeah, you can crazy. let yourself be a dinosaur. You, well, it's crazy because my wife and I say, you know, like what you just said is true. Like as you get older, you're supposed to get more conservative. But as I get older, like I, I have always, until very recently leaned libertarian. Like I've always, I've, I get that. Like I'm not one of those people who, like I get the, I get what libertarianism is supposed to be, but nothing, nothing in its, nothing is ever in its purest form. So on its page, libertarianism makes perfect sense, but no one ever uses it that way, right? You're right. like, <laughs> you know, it's like, and the people who do, the people who openly like Gary Johnson, who was obviously not the best messenger, but he was a true libertarian. But he was like, I don't give a shit what you do in your bed. I don't give a shit what you do. Government is just supposed to help you along and keep you safe and build roads and libraries and let's everything else you're supposed to figure out on your own. And so like that idea on paper sounds great, but then of course people manipulate the system. So I've actually become less libertarian, just more liberal point blank as I've gotten older. And it's because of what you're saying, because these old white dudes who refuse to let go um, so yeah, I hope so too. I hope that in years from now, I can be like, 
that I can finally become that guy who's like a moderate where right now I have to be like screaming my head off. <laughs> I mean, I, I live in a building where, and this is totally true. Not that anybody in my building listens to this show. So I don't give a fuck anyway, but as you walk down, I live in a condo because I live in Florida. So of course I live in a condo, but um, on my floor, there are people who have like Trump signs still in their window. And one person even has like a cutout of Trump and Melania. And it's just like, so disconcerting. And there's a few units that are for sale. And, and my wife and I said, if those signs in that picture, those had been up when we were looking to buy here, I, we would not have moved in. here. We wouldn't have done that. Um, and so that's a real, like, they're deliberately trying to keep people out of this building. They know that that's going to keep people away. And it's just like the craziness of, of the world. Like you said, this, this horrific nature of things. Um, and I do think your book is, all of your books are filled with hope. And I think good, good literature, good science fiction literature is aspirational. And, but it can only be aspirational if you show us the ugly. And I think that's what you're doing is you're showing us the ugly, but always sticking in characters of hope. And I fully believe, and I can, you know, I'm okay with the hero dying at the end. Um, and I'm okay with disappointed endings and sometimes the bad guys win. But like, I feel reading your books, like this guy, this bad guy, this Patrick Bateman guy, he's, he's going down eventually. Like she's, the reason it's called the girl from Mars is because she's, I have faith in her. I've hope she's my hope. Um, she's my <laughs> altruism. She's my screaming liberal who's saying, no, this isn't okay. We need to, like you said, get the kids out of the cages. So, so, so all of that, I just agree with all of your sentiment there. And I think it, it comes through that passion that you have, that emotion that you have, it's here. Um, you're, you're showing us some atrocities that must've been hard. Um, but like you said, we're kind of trapped in history. So really while you're, there's the picture of Kent State. You don't say that that's Kent State, but there's a, clearly an image of the Kent State shooting. And so you're just showing that, that us there, you're letting us, you're reminding us of that. And that had to be hard to write, but you're also making comparisons to everything that, I mean, you wrote that, that, that Kent State picture was a few years ago. That was before people being shot in the streets in Portland. So when the things, so I'm just curious, when you saw the world happening and you had already drawn it, you'd already put it in your books, were you like, fuck, or this goes back to what you were saying is like, we're all trapped and we're all victims of history. So we just have to hope we got through the Kent State shootings. We're going to get through what happened in Portland. We're going to, is that what would happen in Minnesota? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think it, it's weird because the, I mean, I started working on this a long time before the first issue came out. Sure. The Girl from Mars came out in 2014. I've officially dated that that story in 2014. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons is because I don't want to include stuff that happened after that. Um, you know, thinking about Kent State, thinking about, you know, Portland. Um, you know, I mean, when I say what happened after that, the country made a decision in 2016. It did. Um, well, it kind of did, right? Sort of. <laughs> the Electoral yeah. College. Electoral College did, did yeah. <laughs> but, um, I mean, those strains were always there in American mm -hmm. history. I think that, I mean, for me, one of the reasons why it had to be 2014 is because everybody, everything changed for me in 2014. Um, I live in Illinois, not far from St. Louis, and that was Ferguson. Right. And when Ferguson was happening an hour from my house, um, I, I couldn't stand it. You know, it's one thing if that's happening, you know, in Portland, I'm probably not going to get on a bus and, and go out to Portland. 
Um, but, you know, I couldn't stand watching tanks roll through the streets, launching tear gas at people, you know, hitting reporters. I mean, just brutality. And that was the stuff that got, got televised. I mean, you watch these live feeds and you see what the news doesn't report. Um, and so I went to Ferguson and, and you know, Black Lives Matter and, and the whole sort of Ferguson and post-Ferguson uh, response to people basically saying, please stop killing us. And, and if you're not going to stop killing us, let's have a system of accountability to have an independent investigation and maybe don't put your entire city in debt to pay for your police who live in fear of you. Um, or the people live in fear of the police. I mean, yeah. Ferguson broke something in me. Sure. I mean, it, it, it changed me forever. And, and any sort of, I mean, you talked about sort of going from libertarian to liberal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was already liberal, but Ferguson was just the, the moment where I, I, yeah. I just said, like, I'm done. There is no rational argument on the other hand, no version of reality in which this is okay is tolerable to me. Uh, that's just me. Um, so the thing about Kent State, I mean, you know, and, and I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of uh, friends who are in uh, minority communities. I mean, I have friends who are poor, who are struggling under COVID and are just like, we're done, you know? I have trans friends who, you know, are worried, you know, I mean, the, the Trump years were just hell. And, you know, I mean, trans murders happen, you know, every week in this country. And, you know, for some trans folk, you know, Biden getting elected is scary because he, you know, isn't sufficiently liberal. And anyway, um, I actually find a little bit of comfort in what you're saying about history and, and about Kent State that, um you know, it, it, when you look at issues like gay rights, it helps me to say, look at what African-Americans have been through. Look at how many just massacres, how many just, you know, and you see in, in Girl from Mars, I mean, riots that we barely remember today where cops just shot people. Yeah. And that's not just Detroit. like. Yeah, you showed Detroit in there, too. That was important. Yeah, that was pretty horrific yeah and that it's honestly i don't know and the, the captain piccolo movie came out a couple of years ago and that might have mm-hmm. rekindled some memories of it i'm from michigan so it's obviously not always i mean i wasn't alive but you know you can't not know about it but yeah it right. is it's yeah, i appreciated you know that you're like reminding us of these of these horrors and it's not like you're trying to scare us but you're trying to remind us right you're trying yeah, to say and I, and I think for, for me, I mean, and, and this isn't necessarily like the, the point of the girl, I mean, within the narrative, right? This isn't yeah. the point. But, you know, for me, in, in terms of dealing with these times, knowing how long these movements have taken, how many, I mean, what do you say to somebody who is mourning the loss of a family member killed by police or killed in, you know, uh, one of these riots or, or who was lynched. What do you say to them? You know, like, trust me, things are going to get marginally better 
over the next 80 years. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. not very reassuring. It's not reassuring at all. Yeah. And yet that's the truth, right? Um, you know, I mean, and at least we're having these conversations now. And, and I think that, you know, part of, part of the pain of understanding how history moves is, you know, uh, no matter what we do, if we have reparations, if we, if we reunite families and, you know, those kids in cages, they're not going to get their childhood back. No. You know, those people dead in the streets, those people, you know, taken, uh, disappeared uh, by our government, you know, they don't, they don't, we don't get to un undo. But history is filled with terrible atrocities and terrible things that happen. And I don't know. I mean, I think there's some, I try to understand, you know, fully the emotional pain of that, but also have a sort of like almost Zen Buddhist, like, you know, this is part of the process and we are ourselves individuals trapped in history and trapped in our own perspectives. And over time we get to better places, but that's no recompense for the dead. Right. Well, I think, and I think that's, you know, that, that, and again, because of where you end, because you end in 68, throughout volume one, it is a good place. It's, 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 again, I'm not trying to, we're not trying to turn people off from reading this. I want everyone to read this. Because I think, well, no, it's because a fun throw ride of dead bodies. <laughs> well, but it is, but, but I think, and this is where it goes back to the way we started talking about where you come, where you call Matt comic books. It's art. It's high art. It's thoughtful art. It, it is, um, it's layered and it's nuanced. If you need, if it's, you want to see it, it's there. If you, Honestly, like it'd be easy enough for someone to to hand the girl from Mars to someone in a modern, you know, 20th century history course and say, here's here you go. Here's this. This will help you understand American history through this other perspective. And I always find that alternate histories are a great way to look at actual history. Like I always thought I don't teach high school, but I always thought if I ever taught high school and I got to teach a history class, I would actually make every student read uh, Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter mm. because <laughs> it is a, in an amazing indictment and commentary on, on slavery in a total different way that, that by seeing slavery as food, for some reason, mm. it's even more disturbing. Like it cranks the disturbing, that's a silly fun, I don't know if you've read that book. It's, the movie wasn't very good, but the book was delightful, I loved it as I'm talking about slavery, but, but the commentary there, it's like, well, when vampires, the reason that vampires are pro-slavery is because it gives them an, uh, an undocumented food source. You're like, holy shit, you're literally treating them like cattle. Oh shit, they were cattle. That's actually what they were called. So, it's the, right. so, so you're like, oh fuck. Okay, so that's amazing. <laughs> so I just think, so I think a girl from Mars, that's, that's what I feel about a girl from Mars is that I think you should, hand, you should be I always end the book saying, so I'm going to tell you where I would hand it off. I always ask people who they think should read their books or this book. I think that high school history students should read Girl from Mars because of all of this that we're talking about. Because we we started talking about this and it took us down this other road because that's where you take us. It's there to see if you want to see it. If you just want to see it as a cool, fun romp and there's a sociopath and I hope he dies at the end and oh my God, it's a cliffhanger. That's there for you. And there would be no reason if that's all you get from it. But to, to use it as a teaching tool, as a way to say to a high school kid, here's a different, like, Martians aren't real, maybe, wink, but 
read this because you know according to Martian Lit, you absolutely are real. You may be one, as far as we know. We don't know. That could be your whole. That could be your whole stick. I don't know. But no uh, I think I think what's that? No comment. No comment. <laughs> but I think to hand it to a 17 year old, 16, 17 year old, I think the way that you've presented that part of the 20th century and how we kind of got where we are, how we could get to kids being in cages is all right there for us to see. So I appreciate it in that way um, because the best way to learn history, like I think historical fiction is a great way to learn history because then you have to go back and go like, oh, I read this book about, you know, uh, this fictionalized version of Catherine the Great. Well, now I need to go find out what really happened and, and why do you think this is what happened? You know, I just recently watched, and it's old, um, Elizabeth with uh, Helen Mirren. Mm -hmm. And in that, there's a scene where sh she and Mary, Queen of Scots, meet. And then and there was a yeah. recent Mary, Queen of Scots movie with Sorcerer Ronan. And again, they do that scene. And it's like, why is it that all these fiction writers so desperately want them to have been in the same room? So then that makes, right. and we know that they weren't. But so there's something there. So it's just a cool way to go back and look at history and figure out what was keeping them apart. And so I think what you've done is, is that same thing as you've taken this Martian story through the lens of Americans specifically, but you know, obviously the, the, the way that America is the center of the world now in the 20th century and really made us think about why that is. And uh, you aren't, I don't believe you're saying, eh, just blame it on the Martians. You're blaming, they don't know he's a Martian, <laughs> right? Right. So it's so good is all I can just keep saying. All I'm going to say over and over is so good. I appreciate oh. that you've written it. And, well, you're uh, very sweet. I, I mean, I that, that means a lot to me. I, I do have a question for you. Please. Uh, which is, I mean, you were talking about like, you know, the order in which this is read, right? Yeah. yeah. How you read Martian Comics Volume 1 because, you know, that came out first versus yeah. uh, Girl from Mars Volume 1. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that boggles my mind because I have no idea how anyone reads this, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, is Martian Comics serializes both uh, Girl from Mars right now and also other Martian comic stories that then get collected in the Martian Comics volumes. Then there are like, you know, other series. There's Kim at Ren, which takes place in, you know, the 1850. Uh, there's the Synthetics, which has the, the same Martian dates on it. Um, and, uh, you know, there's Lazarus, which, you know, takes place over the course of the last 2000 years. And I sort of real, and I sort of feel like all of this stuff fits together. Mm -hmm. I know what my recommended reading order is. I know what, I mean, right now it doesn't even make sense because none of the stories are really complete. My vision hasn't had time to come out and there are all these references like you mentioned, things that haven't that, even happened yet. Yeah, right. That you haven't seen yet. Uh, how does how, does any of this make sense? Like, how do you how do you approach that sort of like a tapestry that's being woven at five different points? I mean, how do you, as a reader, I know what it's like for me. I don't know what it's like for you. I think. Well, I think it's, and this is where it's a love letter to comics, because I grew up. We're close to the same age, it sounds like. Um, you know, I, I, I was born in the early 70s. And, and so I grew up reading, you know, comics that came out, like Jim Abro was my Batman artist, right? That was my guy. Like, um, you know, I always say, like, uh, you know, uh, Denny, I was raised by Denny O'Neill, you know? So it was like, I learned about social justice from Denny O'Neill, right? John Stewart, oh, man. You, know, you, you know, so. Yeah. So that's my, that's, but the, those green, those hard traveling heroes, those Green Lantern, 
Green Arrow, Green Lanterns, in one book, you'd have three stories. And that, and that they would not always, it would maybe take a year for Denny to show you how this Black Canary story, which you thought was just her kicking somebody's ass. And then Ollie's over here fighting social justice and Jon Stewart's over here and Hal's doing whatever. And then in a year, they all meet and everything came together and he trusted us. So I, I feel like you, you, that's what you've done. And because I started reading comics, just picked up a Green Lantern comic and I started reading and then I got a detective comic. So that was kind of my life. Then you go backward. Like when we were kids, you would just go to the comic shop and you go to the quarter bins. You, I would go to like flea markets and then like, here's 20 bucks. I want this box of 300 comics. And I have to just read them. And I, you know, I go through them and figure out what the chronological order is. And like, I mean, I've never read Legion of Superheroes. Like, I don't know this order of Legion of Superheroes, but every once in a while there'd be one. And I'd be like, mm. why is Superboy there? What the fuck is going on? <laughs> so I'd have to piece it together. So I think because I've always read my comics, piecemeal and that early history of the DC universe was not, I mean, it was connected and there was earth Two and all that stuff and Captain Carrot on earth C. So I just think, <laughs> I think because I read comics that way, like that's what you're doing. So I just feel like you're, and it may be that younger readers and I'm not trying to be a grumpy old man, but back in my day, you just, you pieced it together in your mind as a reader, as somebody who grew up as a reader, who still reads several hundred books a year too. Mm-hmm. I'm my, I want to fill in the gap. So I feel like I can speculate where the stories are going. And then when I get to them, I can be wrong. And I'm okay with that. Like, I don't need to be right. I don't need to know how it's going to end. I can guess. So, so to me, I just think you're, you're, you're approaching a, a specific kind of comic reader who is of a certain age, who can handle disparate stories told out of order and uh, can't keep all that in our mind and not be like, wait, I need you to tell me what happens the next day, you know? So that's, so that's a long-winded answer, but I think that's why I'm okay with it. Well, that's pretty awesome. Cause I, I, I live every day in fear of that, you know, oh, yeah. of, of a different answer. Um, as we're I thinking, think, this is so utterly mad, you know? I mean, I, I think that smart people publish a comic, you know, especially if they're independent and they're paying for it themselves and, you know, they're struggling with money you don't want to do what I'm doing, right? I mean, you, you want to start a story, yeah. make it a six issue arc, get it, in, get in, get done, be able to show that to people, say, this is done. You know, do you want the, the next one? You know, let, let's do that. Um, I don't know. And, and, I, and I feel like what I'm doing is sort of the product of a, my own diseased, uh, bizarre brain. Well, I think, I think you as the writer, I wouldn't say that. I think that you as the writer need to tell the story that you need to tell. And that's the order that you need to tell it. And that's the order that it comes out. And, and I also think there's nothing wrong with, with waiting. You know, like I just said, I just finished. So this Pitticus lore book that I just read, which again is fine. If you like trash science fiction, everyone should read it. If you've not read the I Am Number Four books, they're trash science fiction and they're good fun. I think they're fun. I think they're delightful. They're not highbrow in any way, but I loved reading them. So... But you know, you had to wait. So in those I Am Number Four books, that first one came out, then the terrible movie came out, and then they wrote the next book, right? Well, those books take place within a day of each other, but you had to wait two years. So I think there's something about, it's okay to wait. Like you don't, you don't need to have the whole six books written before you publish the first book. You can, you can make us wait. Libra Bray's Diviner series that just came out recently was originally supposed to be three 300 page books and it turned out to be four 900 page books. And every time she kept pushing back and pushing it back. By the time you got the next one, it was totally worth the wait. And 
the, the original source, the difference between what you're doing and what a novelist who's got a 900 page book that you've got to go back and reread, you know, she has to kind of remind you of what happened. Your stories are sometimes eight or nine pages. So if it's, if I've genuinely forgotten, I can go back and read that eight pages to catch up. But I also think, um, you, you know, you've, you've given us such a rich enough story that we want to spend time thinking about it until we get to the next one too. So um, I wouldn't say, you know, I get what you're saying, the smart thing to do, but I think you tell the story the way you want to do it and the readers will come to you. Um, you know, That's you, the theory. <laughs> you don't, you don't, I mean, you know, I, the dream is of course for everybody, we all want to work for the big two or we want to work for Image or Dark Horse or whatever, but there's something about the do-it-yourself way of comics that is also lovely because the only person you have to be accountable to is your, is you, right? You right. are telling a story that you want to tell. Um, and, and I could not do this at those publishers. I mean, maybe, well, oh yeah, no. mm -hmm. you know, image or something, but yeah, I mean, I, when I was a kid, I mean, when I was 20 to, to 30, maybe, you know, I mean, look, the, the smartest thing DC could have done was hire me to like manage their continuity or something, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, I knew it. Um, maybe not as well as Mark Wade, but, uh, sure. um, you know, I had studied franchises and how all of this timeline interacted and what it would feel like for Green Arrow. You know, these were the weird questions I asked myself. Um, nowadays, I think, yeah, you know, I don't, my dream isn't to do that at all. I, I would say that, I mean, this is probably a project that will take the rest of my life, uh, just in terms of how long this story will take to play out. Um, and, but I wake up, I, uh, so I started saying I'm a depressive and I, and I grew up as, as a depressive and that influenced my love of comics. I am happier now than I ever have been at any period of my life. And it fills me with joy to wake up and think I am doing exactly what I should be doing with my life. And I am in the middle of making this comic story and I, and I don't, and I'm wrestling with this plot and some days I love it. And some days I hate it. And some days I think, you know, I mean, if, if I die, I can point to that story and say, this life was worth it. And other days I think I'm insane. And all of this was a bad, bad move. We've but all been there. Yeah. I, I get up and I want to get up and I want to do that. And I want to make that story real and I want to make it exist in this world. And so I don't have any desire to change what I'm doing. I feel fulfilled and uh, this may take the rest of my life, um, but I'm doing it the way I want to do it. I've got my plan in mind. If I die tomorrow and this is all that we have, I'm sorry guys, <laughs> you know? yeah. uh, but if I, if I can fulfill 50% of what I've got planned um, and it'll, change in the telling um it, it's it's something really amazing and, and it's something i'm really proud of um well so i, I just think, hope there's an audience oh yeah i think there is well this will hopefully this helps you know get, get some more people out there and and um uh, a fan of yours who's been on my show uh jack he's got his website i am jack's musing he's listens to your show and mm -hmm. i told him come on he's excited uh, to hear this and i know he's a fan of of what you do, so um, he'll spread he'll spread the word as well on that side of the pond as uh, Scott does. Um, yeah, and you know what? I feel like everything you said, what you've done so far, is impressive and beautiful, and 
um, everyone should get these books. And I'm glad we didn't spoil too much. I mean, we talked and talked and talked, which is what, no, no, but that's what a good book is, a good book. You know, I do spoil a lot on the show because sometimes you just kind of have to, but like, because you've given us stories in progress, I'm not going to say incomplete stories because they're not done. These are stories in progress. This isn't the last tycoon, right? It's not an incomplete story. It's a story in progress. So we get to go forward and we get to um, keep reading and follow you. And so let me ask you my final question and then you'll promote yourself. And then we will have, we started early. I, I asked you to give me up to 90 minutes. We've gone well over. So I appreciate all your time this morning. Um, so who do you think should read your book? Who's your... If you had to recommend to somebody, you're like, and it's hard, right? Because like you're promoting yourself, but you're also now or not somebody who's like, you know, who's awesome? That Dr. Darius is awesome. So it's hard. I know that's not who you are. So like, but if this is your chance to tell someone, I'm going to recommend my book to a type of person. Who do you recommend your book to? Uh, I am really bad at marketing myself. Okay. Um, but but I I. I, I Part of me wants to say, everybody, there's something for everyone. And yeah. there's a clown in the corner. And, yeah. you know, if you like robots fighting a civil war on Mars, then I've got the comic for you. you and do. if you want a thoughtful, you know, uh, uh, exegesis of uh, American history, then I've got the comic for you. Um, but ultimately, I think that while I'd, I'd love to have any eyes and, and any sales, I think that if you are somebody who is thoughtful, who maybe, you know, feels uh, like they want something different and uh, searches out, you know, those, those, you know, trade paperbacks of, you know, weird British comics and, you know, or, or weird uh, movies, you know, I mean, if you're the kind of person who's like, yeah, I heard about this weird, uh, you know, Korean movie from the, you know, the sixties, like, let's check it out. Yeah. This is probably going to be right up your alley for and, sure. And, and hopefully, hopefully make uh make you feel less like an outsider like we we might not be talking but those those works have made me feel less alone and made me feel like this is a universe worth inhabiting nice that's beautifully said i love that that is the best place to end on such a positive that's awesome <laughs> oh, that's lovely so every so i will put links to all your stuff so say whatever stuff you want obviously i'll link to marshall lit and to sequard and uh if you want your Twitter, you tell everybody where they can find you and I will link to all that in your show notes, please. Okay, well, uh, Martian Lit is uh, just martianlit.com. That'll take you to the uh, website. You can go into comics. You can look at uh, uh, all of the comics and go to Comicsology. Girl from Mars is uh, dropping, volume one is dropping on Comicsology on the 23rd. Uh, so it should be nice. up. Um, it will be, yeah, this will come out in, in January. So it'll be out. So okay. I will link to the Comicsology link. Cool. So that, that'll be up there. Uh, I'm at Twitter at, uh, at Julian Darius. Uh, Martian Lit is at Martian Lick. Sequart is at Sequart. And Sequart.org will take you to the Sequart site. And our 40-some books and seven documentary movies or, you know, the insane, you know, legacy. And you give shit the... away sometimes. There's some freebies on oh, yeah. there. There's some free PDFs, people. Don't, don't oh yeah, and if you follow the the Twitter, uh, we're we've been for COVID trying to trying to give away uh, books to help people, you know, be entertained and, and make it through. So yeah, and that's been awesome. And and then in January or February, sometime next year, 
Judging Dread. I'm so proud mm. of my essay, and I, I I thank you for the and you didn't know. I mean, Scott picked me, but I appreciate the opportunity to be part of that organization that way. And um, absolutely, uh, that's I'm looking forward to, to it, and it's an honor to be on the show. You know, thank I've you. listened to the show, and I see you on uh, Twitter all the time, yeah. and so it means a lot to me. And well, this is great, so and. And so what we'll do is if, you, you know, if sometime in the new year, we'll have, we'll do again, we'll do a different volume of something else of yours. Or if you just want to come on and be the nerd, nerd out with me. So like I had a creator on, uh, Kyle Stoop, he's got his own horror comic, which is delightfully fun. Um, and then he came back on and then my first show of the new year on January 1st is him on just as a regular, we talk about uh, Dear Creature. So if you ever want, if there's ever like mm -hmm. a weird indie comic where you're like, man, I would love to spend an hour talking about whatever, some weird comic that nobody's ever heard of, you let me know, we'll make that happen. I'm gonna do, uh, I've got some good stuff coming up and I'm always happy to just chat. It's been lovely to meet you. I've appreciated awesome. this. I, I've enjoyed the hell out of it too. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. Comics in Motion is proud to be sponsored by Renovations Press, home of the world-renowned tracksuit man, the story about traveling to which we can all relate and something we've all missed this last year. Renovations Press continues to make the decades-long quest to bring quality, independent comics to the masses, with three comics each year featuring the supergroup slash government experiment gone wrong, section 12. Click the link in the show notes for more information about how you can buy some high-quality, independent comics. And stay tuned, because each time a new issue comes out in 2021, Comics in Motion listeners will be eligible to win free copies of section 12. Click that link, check out Lenovations Press, support them on Patreon, you'll be happy you did. What started as just an appearance on Indie Comic Spotlight has turned into an excellent partnership between Comics in Motion and Lenovations Press. We look forward to bringing you some amazing content.